Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Moz Afzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. So we have a, a very special guest um, this week. Uh, for those of you who were lucky to attend our conference, we had the pleasure of Susie Imber to, uh, uh, to tell us everything about space and resilience. And uh, we're very lucky to have Susie here again. So Susie, welcome. Thank you so much. So uh, we also have uh, Daniel, Daniel Murray. Thanks, Daniel, for, for joining uh, as well. So I'm going to hand over to Daniel to maybe take us through the first uh, parts of the Q&A, Susie. And uh, we have basically a, a quick introduction to space. Uh, certainly, I learned a lot uh, a few weeks ago uh, as to what space was, other than, you know, watching a few f- sci-fi movies. <laughs> Daniel. <laughs> Thanks, Mose, and, and thanks again, Susie, for joining us. Really delighted to have you with us today. Uh, just thought it'd be interesting if you could provide a quick background to yourself and, and how you got to be where you are today. Sure. So uh, my name is Susie Imber, and I'm a space scientist. And so what I do is I work at a university predominantly, um, and I am involved in missions to other planets in our solar system. So the one I'm involved in at the moment is a mission on its way to Mercury. Uh, And these missions take a long time. So we started thinking about this in the year 2000, and it will arrive at Mercury in 2025. So these are sort of long, expensive science-based missions that that I get involved with. Um, And so uh, I talked uh, at at the conference about the space industry and the future of the space industry, because we're always looking for the next innovation in our field and sort of driving it forwards. But also I'm really interested in how we can use the technology that we have for the benefit of all humanity. And there's lots of different aspects of Earth observation, science and and monitoring that we can use um, to benefit society more generally. Thanks, Susie. I mean, I think that's a really interesting point because, you know, there's perhaps a perception amongst the general public that um, space travel and space industry is intellectually very interesting, but it's really largely an academic exercise uh, and it's very expensive. And I don't think people necessarily appreciate what the practical benefits are. So perhaps you could just expand on uh, some ways in which space science and the space industry benefits humankind more generally. Yeah, of course. There's so many things I could talk for 45 minutes just about this topic. There's so much that I think is relevant. So I guess sort of starting with looking at the Earth from space, we're beginning to develop technology that allows us to monitor the Earth in real time. And that means that we can do things like monitor uh, crop health across large swathes of the Earth's surface. So here we're looking to be able to predict situations where there might be Um, a lack of food in different areas. Um, We can look at flooding in real time. We can look at wildfires in real time and monitor the extent of these regions, which clearly is important for disaster management. Um, We can look at things like deforestation, uh, illegal logging. Uh, We've done um, studies where we've looked uh, for sites of modern slavery by using images taken from space. So there's lots of different ways in which we can protect our planet, but also ways uh, in which... Um, monitoring the Earth from space can really help um, 
benefit different areas of society and certainly work towards the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, another aspect is the technology that is associated with the space industry. And so many people will be thinking about things like um, the mobile phone and your camera first developed for, for space purposes. But actually, it, it goes well beyond this. The kind of technologies that we're developing today are really relevant because we're trying to miniaturize space technology going from the old style missions, which are the ones that I'm involved in now, where we send huge, um, very expensive missions to other places in the solar system. And by expensive, I mean, you know, a billion dollars. And they take many years to create. It's like handcrafting a Rolls Royce beautifully. And what we're looking at in the future is launching much cheaper um, satellites that are, that are much easier and quicker to develop. And then we... Um, we, we change the instrumentation for whatever purpose that satellite has. So we're really reducing the cost of access to space, but that means miniaturizing technology. And obviously in any aspect, if we miniaturize technology, we expand the use of that technology. Um, so it, it won't just be simply technology for space. Um, so I guess those are a couple of ways in which it's useful to us. And I think, I think the third way is things that are just coming online now that we are going to be relying on in the future. For example, um, new ways of telecommunication that send signals up to a satellite and uh, through a satellite network and then down to the earth again, for example. Um, this is going to change the way that, that uh, we're able to send signals um, and get data across the internet, for example. Um, and many of us just every day use space technology without even thinking about it in our everyday lives. So it, it's much more embedded than in, in society than we think. And, and so when people think, oh, it's kind of interesting, but it's really expensive, actually it's relevant to all of us every day. Thank you, Susie. I wasn't uh, aware of some of those applications, so really good to have a bit more uh, information on it. Uh, you um, you also uh, mentioned there the uh, talk of interplanetary travel and so forth, and the, I guess the, you know, the, the one of the fantasies that is repeated in many sci-fi films and books is the prospect of uh, humans colonising another planet. Is that reality, or is it just something for uh, for the sci-fi books and films? <laughs> Great question. We often joke that colonizing Mars is always 30 years away. <laughs> um, and uh, so I'm going to tell you that it's yeah 20 or 30 years away. Um, and hopefully I won't still be saying that in 20 or 30 years. But yeah, I mean, I do think that we're getting closer to colonization of another planet. The first step for us is to go to the moon and make a habitation on the moon, a permanent habitation on the moon. Um, and the reason for that really is that... Um, it, the first steps that we take, we want to try and keep people safe. We want to be able to bring people back if there are problems or issues or um, we need to sort of exchange crew or provide more resources. And missions to Mars, we're talking about six to nine months at least to, to get um, any supply vessel to Mars, whereas just going to the moon, it just takes a few days. And so the first step really for us is that. And, and we're still in the sort of baby steps of really understanding the kind of technology we're going to need. So in terms of the sort of the main challenges we have to overcome, already on the International Space Station, much of the water is recycled. So we understand a lot about recycling water and resources such as this. Um, and we're beginning to develop technologies where we can... Um, 
think about how we uh, recycle the air and, and, and give a breathable atmosphere. But one of the really big issues for us actually is radiation. So uh, Mars has no magnetic field and our magnetic field at the Earth is what protects us from the radiation from the sun. And so one of the main challenges we have to overcome is how we keep people safe from this radiation, both en route to Mars and when they arrive there. And that could mean that our habitation is under the ground, in caves underground, for example. Um, but sort of overcoming some of these issues is, is really uh, quite a big challenge for us. And so the idea is that initially we we do tests on the moon uh, and then go to Mars. So in terms of the moon, I think we'll have boots back on the moon in the 2020s. Um, we won't have a permanent habitation there in the 2020s. That's probably 2030s and beyond. And then heading to Mars, yeah, in the 2030s, 2040s, I would guess. That uh, sounds relatively close. Um, I'll be uh, yeah, hugely interested to see how that develops. And do you think uh, that there are any other planets other than Mars that potentially will see human feet touch the surface of uh, over the next few decades? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, and I'm afraid, I think the answer is no. Um, I think it's going to take us a long time before we go further in our solar system. Having said that, we have some fascinating missions that are going to other planets that aren't crewed. So uh, we have a mission going to uh, Europa, one of Jupiter's moons, looking for maybe past history of or evolution of life on that planet. We've got one going to Titan, which sort of resembles, which is one of Saturn's moons, which sort of resembles maybe the early Earth. So we've got some really fascinating missions coming up to explore lots of different areas of our solar system, just not with people. Fair enough. Maybe it's safer that way. <laughs> um, in, in terms of, I mean, these are you know, huge distances. You said it will take six to nine months to uh, get to Mars, give or take a bit. And uh, they're massive distances. How... Uh, yeah, how can, uh, whether they're manned or unmanned missions, how can they um, fuel themselves and ensure that they have sufficient energy and systems to get themselves there? What, what are the, the dominant ways in which uh, these vehicles propel themselves? Well, we're developing new technologies in this domain, actually, and there's a couple of areas in which we've made really big steps over the last few years. The first is something called an iron engine, and an iron engine is basically the opposite of a rocket. So a rocket has enormous thrust, and it fires for a short period of time, and it gets you um, off the Earth's surface, in essence. And then you have to travel to wherever you're going, and that's where our iron engines come in, because they have minimal thrust, really, a very small amount of thrust. But... Um, you can fire them for months to years at a time. And so, they, in essence, they really are the opposite of a rocket engine. And we have a few missions, including the mission I work on, Pepe Colombo, that are already using iron engines. Um, so we're beginning to develop the technology um, to send missions all over the solar system using, using iron engines. And I think that really is an interesting thing to think about in the future. Um, and the other thing that we have to think about is how to power our spacecraft when they get to their destination. And it really depends where you're going. So you might think we're going to Mercury. We're just going to use solar panels because it's really close to the sun. But actually, solar panels lose efficiency when they get that close to the sun. And so you might think that Mercury is perfect for solar panels, but really it's, it's not ideal. And when you certainly when you go the other way and you start heading out into the outer solar system, you just simply don't get enough energy from the sun uh, to, to, to power your spacecraft. So we're developing new uh, nuclear devices that will enable us to power our spacecraft, miniaturizing nuclear technology um, to, to, to use on missions to the outer solar system. So there's a lot of work going on in this area um, trying to help us get to places more efficiently. In terms of um, uh, funding for all of this technology, 
Um, how uh, how is it typically raised? Is it government budgets? Clearly, recessions and all those sort of things are not particularly good for 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 spending uh, on, on on these types of uh, initiatives. But um, you know. Uh, how is funding raised? Obviously, we've got some high-profile ones uh, coming from billionaires these days. But um, yeah. um, and and obviously the technology that's that's being spent. You talked about uh, you know miniature nuclearization. Um, you know who's actually paying for all of this? So uh, the technologies I've just been talking about are the realm predominantly of the space agencies. So the large space agencies um, put a lot of money into these technologies, and the ones that I've mentioned are really important for exploring the outer and inner regions of our solar system in particular. And so if you think about where the commercial space industry sits at the moment compared to the national space agencies, people often think that they're kind of locked in some kind of power struggle, but actually they just do really different things. And so the European Space Agency that we're part of and we remain part of, uh, or or NASA, for example, they're really interested in uh, large-scale exploratory missions um, they're not interested in in the kind of missions that you don't make any money from going to Mercury and understanding how it works. They're, they're really science driven. And if you think about the billionaires, there's um, an angle to what they're doing, of course, which is associated with making profit and, and what's going to be profitable. And so these sort of two aspects of space exploration really go, go hand in hand. Um, to some extent, and and they complement each other. But for some of these technologies that are just being developed at the moment, um, the facilities required to do this development are very expensive. A lot of the technology is proprietary, and so they're mainly funded by the governments. So if you had to go crazy and stick your neck out, where do you think the space industry will be in the next 50 years? Or perhaps where do you think the most exciting developments in the space industry will be? Uh, looking forwards in terms of the commercial space industry, there's sort of a couple of avenues that I think will we'll probably be moving in. Um, at the moment, we think about the tech billionaires. So we think about people like Richard Branson and Elon Musk, and they're developing rocket technology. And um, this rocket technology is at the moment being used to send tourists up uh, to the edge of space and then back again. But I think really the future of this kind of technology is that there'll be spaceports all over the world and it'll be much faster for us to send passengers from A to B by launching them essentially in a rocket up um, into the upper atmosphere and then back down again um, than on a plane. So I think it really will revolutionise the future of sort of the aviation industry. And that's going to be quite interesting. Um, I think that we are also beginning to send missions to uh, other bodies in the solar system, not just the moon or Mars or planets, but also asteroids. So uh, what we've realised is that there are bodies in our solar system that contain precious resources that, that are scarce on the Earth. Um, an example being the moon. The moon contains large quantities of something called H3+. And the idea is that H3+, in the future, might be um, a really valuable resource for fusion. Uh, so thinking about the future of energy generation. So I think that as we move forward, we're going to start uh, mining asteroids and the moon for their resources. And I think this will happen in the next 50 years. And that, again, will, will be uh, interesting when you think about the commercialization of the space industry. So uh, the next sort of topic area that we could discuss with you is ecology in space. And you touched on uh, some of the ways in which space and satellite technology are being used to monitor and fight climate change. Are there any other ways in which uh, technology can be used? Specifically for climate change, it's really it's really a challenge of monitoring. And actually associated with climate change, one of the things that we have to remember is that 
Um, while we're taking amazing data today, actually, um, data on short timescales isn't that useful to us. We need extended timescales of, of uh, similar data. So we need decades of data, basically, um, because changes that happen to our climate can be caused by lots of different reasons. And of course, uh, the impact that we're having is, is significant on the climate. But there are lots of other natural cycles in the Earth system that we need to understand. And these have... Um, have periods of decades to hundreds of years. And so we need long time series data uh, and obviously the, the real-time monitoring aspect as well. Um, so we have fleets of missions um, that are monitoring the Earth continually. And like I mentioned, we're doing, for, in terms of climate change, we can do things like monitor sea ice levels, monitor ice thickness, so glacial, glacial melting. Um, and and so we can sort of address changes in um, in sea levels associated with climate change and so on. Uh, but we can do so much more in terms of looking at ecology more broadly. Um, and one thing that I didn't mention, actually, which, again, is kind of a, an interesting mix between thinking about ecology and thinking about society and um, in these regions is we can we can track uh, shipping from space. Uh, in, with incredible accuracy. So we're looking now at, at watching boats and there's, in fact, a website uh, called Global Fishing Watch, which you can go on to. And if you do, I will warn you, you'll probably spend an hour there. Um, but looking at the fleets of boats on the oceans and where they're going, it tells you where they're going. It tells you um, what kind of a vessel it is and the details of the vessel where it's registered. And by looking at the tracks of these boats, we can determine what they're doing. And so um, recently there was a, a case where a boat was tracked off the coast of Madagascar. And just looking at the track, it was clear that the boat was a fishing vessel. Now, commercial fishing, fishing is banned in that region um, to preserve fish stocks. And so the, the fishing um, company that were associated with this vessel were actually taken to court over this illegal fishing, which was picked up um, by observing from space. But uh, also is really of benefit to the local community who rely on the fish stocks for their... Um, keeping keeping food on the table um, and keeping their economy going. So actually using um, data from space to look at not just the ecology of the fish stocks, but also um, preserving the fish stocks uh, for the local community is a great example of how we can kind of tackle lots of different aspects and challenges with our society from space. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of this, uh, uh, you know, a lot of this monitoring and information gathering is dependent on data and of course, data is no good if it's in private hands. So how easy is it to get hold of the, the relevant data? Is it shared generally or do, is it privately owned? It really depends on, on the body that collected that data. So if you go to the National Space Agencies, our mission and, and many other missions, we have to publish the data that we collect. Um, there can be a proprietary time period, and that gives us an opportunity to calibrate the data and make the more complex data products. But ultimately, it has to be published for anybody to access. And so in terms of um, the, the, the National Space Agencies, that's simply the policy that we all adhere to. However, um, if you're a commercial company, then your data has value to you at a commercial level. And so you're not going to want to publish that data. And in fact, you aren't obliged to do so. So one of our challenges is to gain access to data, which we want to use for our scientific purposes, but which also has commercial value. Um, we can't afford to pay the cost often that's required to, to commercially purchase the data that we need for our research. And so this is a, going to be increasingly more of an issue as we see more and more commercial ventures um, collecting data that could be incredibly valued for our scientific purposes. 
Great stuff. Susie, maybe I'll, uh, maybe let's delve a little bit more, I guess, into the uh, kind of commercial uh, aspects of, uh, of space. You uh, talked about um, you know, space travel uh, f- for the masses, uh, or certainly, uh, maybe you can just outline some of the the uh, some of the projects that are going on uh, to to allow that to happen. Sure. Yeah. So uh, there are sort of three main players uh, in the industry at the moment, and I'm sure we'll have heard of all of them. So these these Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, and and SpaceX. And so these these companies kind of have slightly different take on on what they're trying to achieve. Um, Virgin Galactic uh, and and Blue Origin they're interested in launching passengers to the edge of space and back. So they fly in basically a huge arc, and as they get to the top of their arc, they're at around a hundred kilometers, and that's the border of space called the Kármán line. They go just above the Kármán line, and their passengers float for about six minutes. Uh, they look at the Earth from space. They don't see the whole Earth from space, but they see sort of a large swathe of the Earth's surface, and they and they come back to land again. And they have different technologies, Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin, but it's the same basic concept. Um, and and these are open for people to. Certainly, Virgin Galactic is open for people to buy tickets. They're around two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a ticket, and they've sold hundreds of these. It's clearly hugely popular. Um, and Blue Origin is about sort of the same price range. SpaceX, slightly different idea. They would like to take passengers around the moon and back. So much uh, more expensive and larger mission, but much further away in time. So Virgin Galactic will probably take their first customers this year or, or early next year. They've almost finished their testing program and their technology is fairly well advanced. This is not the case for SpaceX. They have quite a long way to go for theirs. So those are the kind of big players um, in the industry of space tourism. Um, the other thing that we've seen over the years already is tourists going to the International Space Station. There have been eight um, tourists that have been up there, spent on average a week there. It's cost tens of millions of pounds to, to have a journey. Um, and as the International Space Station heads towards its end, which is probably in the mid-2020s, mid to late 2020s, it may become... Um, well, although it may be harvested for its pieces, but it may also become a place that you can go as a tourist and spend some time. So I think that's sort of where the sort of commercial space travel is focused at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, not sure that's on my bucket list at the moment. <laughs> uh, uh, but I'm sure it's on your bucket list, Susie. <laughs> It's definitely on my bucket list, absolutely. <laughs> Although I have to say that, you know, while I wouldn't turn down uh, a personal invitation from Richard Branson to go to the edge of space, um, I think I would prefer to go through the traditional astronaut training program with the European Space Agency because it's a five-year training program, but then you get to spend sort of six months doing science in space, and that's really where my heart lies, rather than just a quick venture into space and back. <laughs> Um, in terms of obviously you've we've got these sort of uh, uh, commercial companies, presumably they exist or certainly space exists because it's able to do stuff you know uh, put satellites up etc cheaper than NASA or any of the traditional agencies. Um, maybe you could talk about I guess some of the financial dynamics that um, that these companies have and how they've been able to in some respect just outcompete you know nasa in terms of being able to launch rockets you know far far more efficiently and cheaply yeah of course so a really good example of this and why i say that nasa and the commercial space industry aren't really necessarily at loggerheads is um the resupply of the international space station and so obviously we started off 
uh, by having the space shuttle program. Well, that's that's one that the US used for many, many years. That was really the workhorse for NASA. And then that program finished, and then the Americans became reliant on the Russians to gain access to the International Space Station. And you can imagine how uncomfortable that felt. Um, and so Tim Peake, uh, our astronaut, British astronaut, went up on a Soyuz, which is a Russian uh, space vehicle, and the American astronauts likewise. And so for a few years now, we've been reliant on the Russians to gain access to the International Space Station. But earlier this year, uh, earlier in 2020, uh, we saw for the first time commercial entities supplying not just um, uh, not just uh, sort of resupplies, but also taking humans up to the International Space Station. And NASA signed contracts with a couple of companies, um, SpaceX and Boeing, to uh, resupply the International Space Station and sort of take over where the space shuttle finished. Uh, and so NASA basically realized that, that these companies have the technology that's required, that it's going to be much cheaper than developing their own program. Uh, and so they simply um, sort of managed to use these these companies for their own purposes. And so um, NASA has amazing technology, as I mentioned, that's developing for other purposes. But where it sees the commercial industry being able to contribute, it's willing within sort of safety protocol to, to expand its horizons to incorporate the commercial space industry. And I think that's really valuable. And are we seeing that, for example, in countries like, I know, China or um India, that I guess a lot of the emerging market countries have started to talk about uh, space travel or, or, or at least um, putting up satellites. Yes, certainly, certainly. Um, there are many, many more countries now that are sort of entering this region. It doesn't tend to be a crude space flight for many of these emerging nations. It, it tends to be um, sending up uh, sort of uh, small satellites. Uh, so, for example, we've had missions to the moon that China has launched recently. Um, we had there's been lots, actually, lots of examples of, of, of countries sort of reaching out, both African countries, South American countries, um, being able to realise their space ambitions. And I think that as the cost of access to space goes down and as the technology uh, is less niche, uh, I think that we'll certainly see um, some of these countries really increase their space programmes. And um, one question we had from the um, uh, from the uh, conference the other day was um, liability. Obviously, um, uh, with all these um, uh, sat, you know, sat rocket ships going up, and you know, there's always these fears of collisions and and uh, things obviously going wrong. Um, how does the the kind of liability um, for accidents and you know, maybe problems with a satellite that doesn't open up properly or is not delivered properly. Are these just covered from traditional insurance and uh, or it's uh, tough luck if it didn't work? Oh, it's a really interesting question, actually. So there was a treaty called the Outer Space Treaty, which was signed uh, in 1967 uh, by the UK, the US and Russia. But now 110 countries have signed up to it. And it's it's a treaty that sort of deals with the space environment. So it's uh, covering things like um, the fact that outer space should be free for exploration. Um, it, you can't sort of appropriate a region of space for your own country. There's sort of no sovereignty claims, a bit like Antarctica in some senses. Um, there shouldn't be any nuclear weapons or weapons of mass destruction in space, sort of lots of different things. But one of the clauses says that states shall be responsible for, for their activities, whether carried out by governmental or non-governmental entities, uh, and will be liable for damage caused by their space objects. So that kind of puts the onus back on the state 
um, whether it's a governmental program or a non-governmental program, which is which is quite interesting. Um, in terms of how it really works, though, in a practical sense, is that while there are well over a million pieces of space debris currently orbiting the Earth that could potentially cause damage to assets of value, actually there are very few of those objects that we can really trace back to an owner. We know there's very few of them that we actually sort of know where they came from and how they were generated. And as a result, of course, there aren't very many objects for which you could really say, well, this is this is the responsibility of this entity or, or this state. Uh, and so that's really one of our big challenges is, is firstly, keeping the legislation sort of up to speed. But secondly, really being able to apply that is, is really difficult if you simply don't know where the object came from that did the damage. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's probably as you said, there's a million pieces of uh, of uh, I get bits of metal flying around the Earth's yeah. orbit. Um, um, so let's maybe talk about some of the challenges of of space travel. So obviously, space debris uh, is uh, is one of them. Maybe you could sort of take us through that particular challenge and uh, you know, what are the solutions? Yeah, of course. So space debris is just a, a hugely growing problem. And, and it really comes about because we've been launching objects into space for many, many decades now. Um, and I like to think of it as kind of akin to the issue of plastics in the ocean, which is obviously much more visible as, a, as an issue to us. But it, it's similar in the sense that we've sort of been careless over the years with our launches. Um, a lot of the pieces of space debris are defunct satellites, but also sort of the upper stages of rockets, um, historically some of the upper stages of rockets have still had some fuel in them when they've been discarded and then they've exploded and so again we have lots and lots of pieces being made um, as a result and these objects are flying around the earth at tens of thousands of kilometers per second and so we have issues with them colliding with other objects and causing huge damage and of course whenever you have large collisions you end up with sort of an exponential problem of more and more pieces that go on to cause more and more collisions we've also had um, a couple of really key moments. There was a moment when uh, an Iridium, which is a communication satellite, uh, uh, collided with a Russian satellite, and that caused thousands of pieces of space debris. And there was another example where um, there was a Chinese satellite that was deliberately exploded. And so, and that also caused thousands of pieces of space debris. So there's a sort of a few kind of key turning points in the road that really increase the number. But on a lower level, there's been space debris being formed continually for a really long time. And and so our, our challenge is that a lot of the space debris is located in really valuable orbits. So low Earth orbits, geostationary orbits, orbits basically below 800 kilometers in altitude, roughly, are really valuable to us. And they are getting incredibly polluted. And, and the danger for us is that the, the situation could get so bad that it's simply not worth launching an asset into space because as soon as you do, it's going to get hit by a piece of space debris and, and damaged or destroyed. Um, so it's, it's really sort of a growing problem that we need to address. And we, we do it in a lot of different ways. So a really sort of good starting step and something the national space agencies have been doing for some time now is discussing what happens at the end of a satellite's life. What, what do we do with our assets? Making sure that we either send them into um, sort of a garbage orbit, so we, we send them away into an orbit where they aren't going to damage valuable resources in space, or we deorbit our assets and they, if they're small, they might burn up in the atmosphere or they come back down to Earth again. So thinking about what we do at the end of the satellite's life is really important. And, and some satellites will last longer than others. But... I think this is compounded by the launch of massive networks of satellites. And so a good example would be the SpaceX 
um, recent launch of over, well, they want to launch over 12,000 satellites into space in a, a network called Starlink. And the goal of Starlink is to reduce the latency of data transmission across the globe. So that's important for things like the financial industry, but also to allow global access to the internet. Because as you as you um, using satellites for your, your communication, uh, your connection to the internet, and there's 12,000 up there, there's always sort of one near you. So wherever you are on the Earth's surface, you should be able to gain access to the internet. And that's really valuable if you think about communities that have been isolated from this resource. For, for many decades compared to the rest of us who just take it for granted. So there's huge benefits to this. But they'd like to launch 12, I think 12,500 satellites to have this network. And the satellites have a lifetime of five years. So every five years, they'll be launching 12,500 satellites. So we have to think about the debris associated with the launches. Now they've developed reusable rockets, which is incredibly valuable um, to reduce the, the waste. Um, and their satellites should come down again rather than just stay parked in that orbit. Um, but that's just one example of um, a network. There are more and more of these networks that are being developed by companies all over the world. As again, as as the cost of sending things into space goes down, the opportunities expand for these massive constellations. Um, and the more constellations there are, the more likely that there'll be uh, an increase in space debris, either associated with the launches or indeed with collisions with these huge networks of satellites. So I think it's something that we really need to keep an eye on. Um, we've developed some technology recently to try and bring down some assets, so large satellites that are out of control that have the potential to do a lot of damage if there's a collision. We're developing um, a net system to kind of wrap a net around the asset and bring it back and a harpoon system, again, to do something similar to deorbit assets that we need to. Um, but the technology is in its infancy and it's really expensive. And so we're sort of beginning to enter a realm where we have to start thinking, you know, whose job is it to remove space debris um, from these really important orbits? Who should pay the cost? And, uh, you know, how is this going to work in the future? Yeah, I was going to say uh, a job for Dyson, probably. <laughs> vacuum those uh, assets in. Um, That's so, what we need, a giant space vacuum cleaner. Yeah, basically, yeah. Um, <laughs> so um, uh, maybe sort of a couple of last questions. Um the first is, um, in terms of kind of challenges, is uh, inclusion and diversity. Obviously, uh, space industry, you know, historically at least, um, and I guess you're the complete exception, um, has been kind of, I guess, very male-dominated. Um, and uh, I guess elites would typically be the ones who would be, you know, um, uh, developing um such missions etc um how's that changing is that changing at all i think that over recent years there have been a lot of different initiatives to try to change that and i can speak specifically to the situation in the uk because i'm really heavily involved with um lots of sort of outreach and stem programs in the uk looking at how we change things but i would say that it's not something that can be changed rapidly because you're thinking about sort of the progression of a more diverse group of people through the system from taking physics and math a levels all the way through to degree and phd and you know starting companies or going into academia and it, there's just sort of a long journey so my advice is go for it <laughs> to anyone who's interested my advice is you know 
just keep going, keep studying, keep working hard, reach out to people in the industry. There are many of us who mentor young people um, and run programs for young people to try and mentor them into the industry. So, you know, reach out to anyone who who you think you find inspiring and and hopefully they reach back and, and you're able to, to work together and sort of smooth the path for the next generation of scientists and, and engineers. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I guess the last question is... Um, around kind of financing if i think back at the space industry it seems that you know after man uh, landed on the moon it, it kind of just died a death and there were many decades where seemingly at least there was kind of not much else happening if you think about um going to the moon as we just discussed you know i guess the costs were so prohibitive that you couldn't really afford uh, or governments couldn't really afford to to do that again um uh, is there a danger that we kind of fall into the same trap or do you think the world has really changed as it comes to you know financing all of these developments it's a really good question you know i think one of the reasons that we didn't go back to the moon although it is obviously extremely expensive first i think it's miraculous that they even got to the moon in the yeah, first place true, you think yeah. about the technology yeah. that they had back then you know it's incredible yeah. Yeah. what they managed to achieve but i think also you think about the political context of the time you know this was a space race this was this was entirely politics uh, that drove this race to the moon and after they'd got to the moon they'd done some exploration they had this sort of headline set of missions then it had been done and 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 so sort of the driver behind being the first and the sort of exploration piece really sort of faded away and, and i think it is sad that we spent so many decades um without that driver but i think it's really coming back there are lots of sort of political statements to be made around um dominance in space and that's really driving a lot of different countries to be part of this as we as we talked about earlier um, but also our technology, the way technology is changing and the realistic possibility of having people living kind of long term on the moon and really looking to Mars, um, I think, means that I, I don't think it's going to stagnate again. And, and I think we really will see sort of the pace of technology and the pace of change increasing over the next few years. Great. Well, thank you, uh, Susie. I think that's for sorry, us financial bods. This is a, a, a particularly interesting uh, topic because obviously um um certainly on the data side there are a lot of rewards of getting going this right but i think also tackling sort of climate and all those things uh and, and esg you know developments that you talked about uh today are all very interesting to ultimately make earth a better place and beyond uh well, mm -hmm. well susie thank you very much for uh for taking time uh, to join us um and uh, thank you, Daniel, for uh, for asking those like key questions at the beginning. Um, so uh, I think we will call it a day there. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll speak to you again next week. Mm -hmm.